Hi everyone, welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Nick Corbishley, who's a journalist with a global perspective who specializes in breaking news, finance, and politics. Formerly a senior contributing editor at the San Francisco-based economics and finance news site, Wolf Street, he is currently a regular contributor to the U.S. financial news and analysis blog, Naked Capitalism, where he writes about financial, economic, and political developments in Europe and Latin America. He's the author of Scanned, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom. Hi, Nick. Hi there, Nikki. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so, so honored to have you on. And I personally have so many questions around this topic. And so I just first, I wanted to say thank you for your work and for just everything that you are putting out there and the book that you just put out there. I think it's so incredible that you're putting yourself and your career on the line for this a lot of censorship going on right now. And so anyone who's willing to share about the truth, I just want to say thank you and that I'm honored to have you on. Well, it's, it's good to be with you. <laughs> so I'd love to get started with just the general question here, I guess, is what ended up drawing you to the issue of vaccine passports and digital IDs? I know you have, you know, your history and your career is in finance and politics. And so I'm curious, what drew you to this particular issue? Well, I mean, I've been writing about um, a very broad range of issues for the last nine or 10 years. Um, and one of those issues is the war on cash, which is something that has been progressively escalated over the last decade or so, and certainly since the pandemic began. And I've also been writing about things like biometric identifiers and the potential risks they pose to privacy. And that's going back a number of years now. So, so it's not completely new to me. Um, what happened is that when, when I saw what was happening in Israel in February 2021, when they became the first kind of advanced economy, if you want to call it that, to go down the route of launching a vaccine passport. Uh, I saw that there was virtually no attention being given to it in the mainstream press, at least um, attention given to the darker sides, which was like the segregation and the discrimination and this kind of like creation of a constant surveillance system. And this was not being covered by the mainstream media. And I saw that it was going to become a reality as well in the European Union, where I live, um, shortly after that. So I began digging into it and began writing articles about the, the risks I saw it as posing to our basic freedoms and to our privacy and to, to many other things that we unfortunately take for granted in this day and age. As luck would have it, in July, an independent publisher in the United States called Chelsea Green got in touch with me and they'd been following my articles on this issue and they, they wanted to discuss the possibility of kind of expanding them into a, into a small book and, and scanned 
is the result of that partnership. So it's been it's been a very interesting journey since then. So incredible. I know you touched on, you know, the fact that mainstream media wasn't really talking much. I mean, this has been going on probably forever, but it was just so heightened um, during the last few years that they just there's so many issues that they're not really diving into in regards to this, um, you know, the vaccine passports, the pandemic, or just like the real data around it. And um, I believe that it has a lot to do with like the sponsorships for the media channels, of course. But I'm curious, like what, I guess I want to get into the financial incentives behind the vaccine and vaccine passports. And, but before, I guess, maybe you can just explain like digital IDs and why the vaccine passports are a gateway to digital identification for all and getting into how that's obviously a huge issue and you know why Europe should this should have been a red flag for everyone but especially Europe yeah I mean I suppose the the way to begin this is by discussing what a vaccine passport actually is so so I mean I'm sure in the United States, you know, there are lots of places that have launched their own vaccine uh, passports. So you've got, I think it's something like 21 states, if, if I'm not mistaken, that have already launched some form of vaccine passports. Um, but, but there may be lots of states that haven't, or there are lots of states that haven't. So maybe some of your listeners are not fully aware of what, what they really are. So, I mean, a vaccine passport is a digital document that um, is supposed to certify that you are up to date on the COVID-19 vaccinations. And that that status of being up to date changes as more and more booster shots are added into the mix. So I think in the United States, to be considered up to date, you have to have had three, three shots in total, um, including that one uh, booster shot. Uh, but, but now I think the... Uh, FDA, if I'm not mistaken, has authorized uh, another booster shot for people over the age of 50. So again, that that could be changing at some point in the not too distant future. But it it differs. This this digital document changes. You know, to qualify, the conditions are different in each jurisdiction. So in Europe, for example, um, if you have had a recent negative PCR test then that can give you very kind of like short period of eligibility. So if you want to go to an event, if you want to travel, then, then it can come into play there. There's also the possibility if you've had a recent infection and you can prove that you've had a recent infection with a PCR, a positive PCR test, then that gives you six months um, eligibility for, for the vaccine passport. So, so that is more or less how it works here in Europe, which is, I think, the region of the world with the, kind of like the most vaccine passports per person. It's all a little bit strange right now because the, the situation surrounding the vaccine passports is kind of constantly in flux. So we're in a situation where in Europe, for example, many countries are withdrawing their use or reducing their use at a domestic applications. So this means that, for example, in the UK, um, you don't need the vaccine passport for, for just about anything. And that includes entering the country right now. So, so it's, it's almost like being completely resigned or pushed back to the, to the back burner completely. 
Um, in Spain, where I live, it's a similar story. Um, in France, they're withdrawing its use or reducing its use for domestic applications. And then you have countries like Germany and Italy, where it's still being used in quite a number of areas. Um, so, so that is the current state of play, at least in Europe, regarding the, the vaccine passports. Now, the question as to why they are kind of like a, a precursor to digital identity, I think that is the case on a number of different levels. So number one, a lot of the companies that have helped to develop the technologies for the vaccine passports, they have openly admitted in many kind of like um, tech, many of their blogs and um, other kind of like technological um, publications, they, they've openly admitted that vaccine passports are very much the beginning to digital identity. So it's just the first step along this path. Um, if you want, I can quote what this, um, a guy called Andrew Budd of iProve, a London-based company that sells facial recognition, had to say. I mean, this the company helped produce the, the British Corona application. Um, so he said, the evolution of vaccine certificates will actually drive the whole field of digital identity in the future. So therefore, this is not just about COVID. This is about something even bigger. And you can see many, many other examples like this, which I quote in my book. Um, so, so it's because it's kind of like it's it's it allows. I say it's allowing governments to lay the tracks to for the systems that will eventually be digital identity. Um, it's kind of like a foot in the door, and we are. So we're now a year down. I would say a year and a bit down this path and already if you look at what many governments are very quietly saying um, not openly saying this again this isn't being properly reported but i mean like they are launching digital identity programs at the same time as they're kind of supposed to be um bringing or what should we say consigning the vaccine passports to the back burner so this is one of the most important things that are happening right now. A second thing that is really important for people to grasp is that the vaccine passports have normalized this idea of living in a checkpoint society, in a digital checkpoint society. So, so we have been conditioned um, in countries where vaccine passports have been used, we've been conditioned to the idea of taking out our mobile phone every time we want to access a particular venue or a particular service or a particular amenity um, and this is very very this is crucial to the ultimate goal of creating a kind of digital identity society it's so interesting to me because on one hand we have people fighting for you know just not non-discrimination across the board and the media is covering this non-stop and on the other hand those same people are pushing this agenda, which is so wild to me that people don't see right through it. Because in my opinion, anyone, every single person, and I'm sure this is your opinion, should be against this because whether or not they've gotten the vaccine, this is a huge issue. And that's why I really appreciate your work and your book, because 
the real issue here is our freedom. And like you said, normalizing this checkpoint society, it's not that, oh, but you need it because it's a public health thing and vaccines have been around. And and I, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this, like it's the same thing in the United States. Like you mentioned, they're, they're backtracking in terms of making it required, which I always think there's an agenda behind that too, because right now it's like going to be election time and they have, you know, a lot of people are upset. So they obviously don't want to require it and then make people think that it went away. And then most likely, in my opinion, they're just going to bring it back full force. Like you said, they're already working on all of this in terms of digital identification. Um, So I want to get into your opinion on that, but I also find it just I'd like, I just think, you know, the vaccine issue to begin with is really interesting how all of a sudden it's gone away. Another thing to mention is it's not like all of a sudden these truckers in Canada or anyone who didn't want the vaccine, it's not like all of a sudden these people got it, you know, like people were fired and were willing to have nothing because they didn't want to be mandated these things in order to live their lives and then it's interesting to me because i think a lot of people forget that those people didn't just all of a sudden get it and then coronavirus went away it's like now people just didn't have it and then things have opened up and it's so interesting to me how in order to be considered fully vaccinated you have to have four shots or almost four shots right now, it's three shots, like you said, but they just um, approved the fourth booster here in the United States. And it's like, okay, well, if I decided to go get vaccinated tomorrow, then I should have the same level technically of immunity as someone who was just boosted. So why do I need the fourth one? But I think it's because, again, they just want to keep people in this um, habit, right, of needing to go do this in order to get access to this. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on why they're backtracking all over the place with not requiring it anymore, but then there's, they're still moving forward with this technology. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's like they've taken, at least it seems to me, they've taken kind of like 10 very giant steps forward in terms of radically reconfiguring the way our societies function and the way our economies function. And they've taken a couple of steps back. Um, and that is a very effective way of kind of like, of governing. You, you, you take away huge numbers of, uh, should we say, rights and freedoms for a certain sector of the population. You get, I think you get to see, you test, the the way the public reacts to that. So I mean, I, one thing that I think is interesting is if you have, if you consider that you know, in many populations in Europe, most people did not really care about the, the levels of segregation and discrimination that were taking place. That's a scary thing. Um, I think that that is the result largely of huge amounts of fear being applied, um, very high doses of misinformation, and it seems like most people have been willing to go along with that. And I think that 
I mean, that didn't necessarily shock me. I mean, I'm a student of history, and one of the staggering things about the 1930s was the degree to which populations, very civilized, very advanced countries, were quite happy to embrace totalitarian systems of government that were clearly harmful and some might even say um, evil. Um, they were willing to embrace those. So I think that this has been one of the darkest lessons from the last year and a half or so, is the way that people can be galvanized to embrace systems of governance that essentially do away with the rights and freedoms of a certain minority of the population. Um, because the lessons of history are that if a government is willing to strip one minority of the population of those rights and freedoms and to essentially target a large part of the population or encourage a large part of the population to hate that group, which is what we went through not so long ago, and they are willing to do it with any other minority group. And that is exactly what we saw with the, the Nazis in the 1930s and 1940s. Is what we've seen in numerous other totalitarian systems. Uh, the, the web always grows. Um, the enemy of the state may begin as a small group of people, but, but it's always expanded. The definition is always expanded. So, so I think that that is something that we have, have seen happen, and they've kind of like, I would say to a large extent, our governments and the corporations and the uh, thought leaders and the institutions, the supranational institutions that are largely pushing this along, they are, I think, quite happy with what they've achieved to date. And, uh, and taking a couple of small steps backwards is not necessarily a bad thing. But I mean, like one thing that I've been trying to tell people as much as possible over the last month and a half, two months since my book, since I finished my book, is that the World Health Organization does seem to be on the verge of instituting uh, vaccine passports at a global level. I mean, like they, are, they are finally talking about embracing them as in their recommendations for the 194 signatory states. Now, if they did that, if they actually go ahead and do that, then that would theoretically mean that vaccine passports are not, are not only going to become permanent, but they will be applied universally, that is by all countries. So I mean, it's, it's completely, completely opposite to what we are being told, which is that the vaccine passport is more or less gone, is no longer something that we need to worry about. Um, if, if the World Health Organization goes ahead with this, then countries where vaccine passports have not been used, so for example, my, my wife's country of birth, Mexico, which we visited back in December, I mean, they don't have a vaccine passport system in place, but if the World Health Organization was to um, recommend it, the pressure on the government, on the Mexican government to put that into practice will be significant. And as I've also been warning, if the global pandemic treaty is signed, which again, most people have no idea about, I have I I've been following along but not like that closely lately and I have no idea about it so please educate us on it. Okay, I mean like this is something that has been that has been under negotiation for months and months. 
um, all governments are um, debating this right now. And if, if it is passed, which is looking increasingly likely, then it will give the World Health Organization a, a lot more teeth when it comes to affecting health policy in each country around the world. So, I mean, right now, the World Health Organization has limited powers. It can make recommendations about what governments should do, but it can't go so far as to actually enforce those recommendations, at least not, 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 not significantly. But if this global pandemic treaty is passed, then it means that they will be able to sanction governments that do not uh, follow its recommendations. And that, wow. that should terrify everybody on planet Earth, because what that means is that you will have an unaccountable, unelected, uh, supranational organization able to dictate health policy for vis-a-vis -vis pandemics, but this could just be the first step. And we would be in a position, it's been bad enough, I would argue, in the last two years to actually prevent governments from taking certain actions that are against the public health interests of the populations. But at least with governments, you can replace them every four or five years if you're living in a democratic country. Yeah. But if the World Health Organization is able to take this power, is given this power, then, then yeah, we will have much less ability to shape our public health policy within our own countries. As you may or may not know, we've been sharing the benefits of saffron with our community for a little while now. Growing up in a Persian family, I'd been aware of the benefits of saffron because of its prevalence in my mother's cooking. But as we began on the journey to create our own line of saffron-based products, I began to learn the powerful science behind the plant. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years, and now the research is backing it up, proving that just 30 milligrams of saffron per day is a natural source for enhanced emotional and physical well-being. At the fullest, we believe that incorporating ancient wisdom into our modern lives is one of the most powerful and accessible paths to healing. We also believe that everyone's journey is unique. So for our latest launch, we've created a line of Saffron products in a variety of formats to help you curate Saffron in your personal daily routine. Warm Feelings is our Saffron Latte powder and comes in individual sachets and in larger sustainable glass jars. Made with just certified high-grade Saffron, organic coconut powder and cardamom, it's the perfect coffee alternative and feel-good start to your day. If you prefer to pop a pill, Kinder Thoughts is our 30-day supply of saffron capsules and a super simple way to support your body and mood with the power of saffron. And if you're looking to strengthen your immune system, try our Mindful Immunity Syrup. This healing blend uses saffron to reduce inflammation, but also harnesses the power of an ancient Middle Eastern berry called barberries to fight infection, along with sea buckthorn and elderberries, all in a base of Manuka honey to aid in antibacterial healing. It's a true immunity powerhouse. Honestly, at the moment, I'm using each of these products on a daily basis, depending on my needs. And to help you begin your own saffron journey, we're offering a discount of 15% off just for our podcast listeners with code the fullest podcast at checkout. I hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual.
what can countries like so what countries have to do it if the world health organization i know you mentioned like 194 but can a country like pull out and you're saying they can't because like how can they just put sanctions on countries that's insane and we've already had such a difficult time with global supply chain issues just because of these mandates like it's wild to think that they can just do that so for example let's say i you know i was a really small country like costa rica or something the world health organization's recommendations would then like it's not like you can pull is every country part of the world health organization <laughs> give us a little bit of a history no, i mean 194 countries i don't think there are many more countries i think there are a few countries that are not are not members but but it's it's very few um so if you put if you think about all the countries on the planet that are should we say official established countries they're all members of world health organization so there's literally nowhere for us to go other than just to fight this <laughs> but who who can we pressure in order to like is there anything like you're saying you know we can pressure our government or place pressure on them or reelect them if we're in a democratic country how can we have a say in what's going on right now with this specific treaty it's not going to be easy i mean if you live in a democratic country with um where you have communication you know some degree of some so should i say some ability to apply some degree of pressure on your local or state representative then then that's at the least of the beginning of what we can do um i think that most importantly we need to inform people because if i think about most people i know the vast majority of them have no idea this is even happening and a lot of people who you know you try to tell are uh, you know they, they, they just don't show much of an interest so i think that the only way we can stop this from happening is if we manage to get enough or should we say enough motion enough of a uh, critical mass behind it uh, or rather than behind it opposed to it so the only way we get a critical mass is if enough people are talking about it um, which is why the book i've written is so important because there are so few books that are actually talking about the risks of digital identity the risks of vaccine passports uh, and I do mention, I mentioned the pandemic treaty in the final chapter because I only found out about it in the final phases of writing this book. Um, but, but since then, they've made strides towards getting this in place. And it's not going to be on your nightly news. It's not going to be on the front cover of the New York Times. It's not going to be on the front cover of The Guardian it's it's just simply not the the only way they can pull off this what i think is a form of coup is if most people have no idea it's happening wow i mean yeah i mean we need to get the word out like i didn't know about it do you know when they're voting on it um it's i think it's looking like it's going to be in the next um six to nine months uh, it's not absolutely clear again it's not clear because there's so little information out, out about it, but, but it's looking like it's going to be in the next six to nine months. At least probably by this time next year, it will already be in place, probably. Wow. This is 
so interesting. Like you said, it's so smart, such a good tactic to act like these passports are going away. And I mean, people who were up in arms about it now are feeling a little more at ease, even though there's like this sense of there's something else going on. We need to stay on top of it. There is a sense of, okay, you know, things are easing up and all the while this is happening in the background. And the issue is, like you said, most people are just completely brainwashed and then they only know what's going on, what mainstream media tells them. So this kind of goes back a little bit like my, my, I don't know anyone other than I would say three people, one of which is my mother-in-law and, um, a one couple friend that my husband and I um, hang out with. Those are the only people that we know that are of the opinion that, okay, like you do what you need to do. You make your own health decisions. Like we believe in vaccines, but you know, if you guys aren't vaccinated, that's fine. We'll hang out, you know, whatever. But otherwise like, or really just respect our opinion. But I would say, um, you know, we just visited family in Hawaii where we were, we were definitely treated um, in a way where we were shocked that a grandmother would treat, you know, his grandson this way. Like my husband was basically our family needed to be masked outside and tested in order to be next to whereas the vaccinated people who have just as um, much of a likelihood to spread the condition, didn't need to be uh, masked up and could be right next to her and to care for her. I mean, I know that she's elderly, but still I think that the mainstream media just has such pull to brainwash people. And like you said, the fear tactics are just so extraordinary that it's pulling families apart and, and it's making it so that people feel righteous in their opinions. And so because most people are vaccinated, then they don't see an issue in, in these passports. And so I think your book is so important because it goes beyond that. That's not the conversation here about whether or not to be vaccinated. The conversation is that our privacy is getting taken away and it's not okay. And I just think it's interesting because like the Canadian truckers, for example, the freedom truckers, they were shown in mainstream media to be this, you know, insane, um, dangerous, organized group of people who were considered racist and all these things. And that's the way the media had to spin it because they had to cover that. Right. But I'm curious if you think there are any organizations out there that are more mainstream where people can where they might be willing to share this information, where we might be able to put pressure on. Because I know there were so many protests during this time across Australia, across the UK, and just Europe in general, and um, even here that were just never, ever televised or spoken about. And there were you know, millions of people. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on if there are any organizations that you trust to like, where do you look for, for the news? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that I look as far and as wide as possible. Um, I think it's the only way to navigate the, the situations 
multiple situations we're kind of like trying to deal with, uh, whether it's the 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 pandemic, whether it's the the war in Ukraine, whether it's the digital identity, whether it's um, the economic crisis that is that is certainly um, getting worse and worse. It's I think you, the only ways you can really be to any degree well informed or informed enough to form a, a reasonable picture of what is happening is if you are looking at multiple sources all the time. Unfortunately, most people don't have the time or the inclination to do that. Most people work eight, nine hour days and they come home and they're shattered and they just, they want to know what's going on. So they turn on the local news or they turn on the national news. And whether that's television, whether that's radio or whatever, it's, um, that puts a huge amount of trust in those institutions. Unfortunately, we have seen that those institutions have been lacking in certain areas and they have, um, I'm not sure if I'd use the word to brainwash, but they've certainly misinformed. And I would say in many cases, they're willfully misinformed. So we know, for example, in the United States that Pfizer is sponsoring so many of the cable news programs and the even the Oscars this year, it is almost impossible to escape the money trail when it comes to the, the pharmaceutical companies. It's almost impossible to escape the money trail, you know, when it comes to an organization like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has been spreading hundreds of millions of dollars across media organizations around the world, media organizations that are desperate for money. And we're supposed to believe that this money comes with no strings attached. It's a little bit hard to imagine that. So, I mean, I think that we are dealing in, in we're in a moment of time where so many of our institutions have been captured by corporate interests that it's, it's, it is essentially, um, very difficult to trust so many of them. And this goes not just for media organizations, like at least the legacy media or corporate media. Um, it goes for regulatory institutions. So we know that our health regulators, you know, the organizations that decide whether or not a medicine is safe or not, they are in part or largely funded by the same pharmaceutical companies whose products they're supposed to be regulating. Um, that is an, a blatant conflict of interest. And, and same with the World Health Organization, right? The World Health Organization is largely funded by private companies and private foundations. So, I mean, like, you know, it's something like around about 80% of all the money it, it receives is from private companies and, and foundations. And that is, that is, for me, the fundamental reason or one of the fundamental reasons why we should certainly be having a discussion about whether it's in the interest of the people on this planet that there is a global pandemic treaty that gives the World Health Organization so much power over our uh, health policy. And probably more than that, because if they are able to dictate that every country on the planet uses uh, vaccine passports, then vaccine passports as I say, are a precursor to digital identity. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that, is, that is giving the World Health Organization and most importantly, those companies that are funding it a huge amount of power over, over 
democrat, supposedly democratic countries. So we have this piece here, right, where we understand the like our audience, I would say, especially people listening to my podcast specifically, not just like reading our articles. Um, a lot of people in our audience understand, I would say, the issue with vaccine passports, the issue with privacy, how it goes into um, taking away our rights, our freedom. And I'm, I really am curious because diving into how vaccine passports are the gateway to digital identification for all, like um, you said, there are so many different pieces here, parts of the puzzle. The war on cash, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that because I would say a lot of people who understand this piece are still investing in Bitcoin, are for digital currency, and I'm very curious what your perspective is on all that and where you stand and how that plays a piece in the digital identification because I think clearly that's part of it all. Yeah, I mean, like the... (laughs) It is kind of like uh, a very important part of this, this, these moving parts that are taking us kind of like down this path towards what I would, I sometimes call the digital utopia stroke dystopia. I mean, since the very beginning of this pandemic, we cash has been heavily demonized. Uh, it already was for many years beforehand, but in the very first month of the pandemic in February and March of 2020, the World Health Organization came out with a statement, which was a bit of an ambiguous statement. It kind of like said that, you know, maybe cash could be a vector for the the virus. Um, And that was seized upon by many of the kind of enemies of cash, which are, is a very large group. Um, You know, we're talking about most specifically the credit card companies, the tech, large tech companies uh, like Apple, like Google, they've all very openly said they want to see the end of cash. Banks as well are desperate to see the end of cash. So, I mean, it's, it's a very large, very powerful group. And this one statement by the World Health Organization was seized upon by them. It was magnified by the mainstream media and we kept being told that, you know, stay away from cash. Cash is, is dangerous. It's not just dirty. It doesn't just facilitate tax evasion and all these other things that we've been told beforehand, but it's potentially life-threatening. And, you know, there were lots of questions about that, whether or not it was true or not. But, but I think that the doubt existed for long enough that this kind of, like, idea really set in and in many countries their use of cash um, declined significantly Um, in the uk for example i I know people friends of mine from the uk that haven't used cash in the last two years they literally haven't used cash for anything uh, which i find staggering Um, so so i think a lot of people under the age of 50 45 50 are already um kind of embracing the the cashless economy cashless society and this changes this differs enormously from country to country so this is why they they have to be very very proactive in this war against cash because you know if you go to the uk it's people really don't use cash much at all Um, and those who do tend to be above the age of 50 60 
but if you come to a country like Spain, um, cash is used a lot more. And if you go to a country like Germany, it's used even more. Um, so, so it's yeah. Each country has its own peculiarities, and some countries are, are more appreciative of cash than others. Uh, if you go to a country like Mexico, for example, eighty, I think it's eighty-seven percent of all transactions are still made in cash. So, wow. it's it's still very much a cash economy, and that is true for a lot of countries that are you know economies that are less advanced, so to speak. Um, and they have a very large informal economies as well. So it's the governments, I would say, central banks um, are also very keen to get to gradually do away with cash because they know that you know in in a cashless economy they can track and trace every just about every um, transaction, and that means they can tax. Um, just about every transaction. Banks can put fees on just about every transaction. So, so that is one of the things that is, you know, is certainly informing the, the war on cash right now. Um, but there's another thing that's really important that, again, most people don't quite realize, and that is the central bank digital currencies, which are, again, they're a vital cog in this kind of like this huge... Uh, new system that is being uh, gradually put into place. Um, the central bank digital currencies are effectively, they will effectively revolutionize our economies. And, and yet most people don't know that they're even kind of happening. Um, there are it's roughly, there are over 100 countries on the planet that are in the process of experimenting with or even piloting central bank digital currencies. And these are currencies that will, you know, right now when we use electronic money, when we pay with mobile phone or when we pay with credit cards, etc., this is all digital um, transactions. Um, but all these digital transactions go through myriad institutions. It's a very complex web. And those are private institutions. It's a kind of decentralized system. It has a huge amount of flaws. It gives um, commercial banks essentially the power to create money. And that's what has been happening for, for many, 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 many years. Uh, going back decades and decades and decades, um, central banks are the ones that create money by lending money into the economy. Um, but a central bank digital currency, what it will do is it will take away the intermediary in this, which, is, which are the commercial banks, and it will mean that every person can have an account with the central bank. Um, so in the case of the United States, it will be the Federal Reserve. And people say there are certain advantages of this. I mean, and there will be certain advantages of this. I mean, like for example, uh, it will be much more direct. It may be cheaper. There may be fewer bank fees in the middle of each transaction, that is also a possibility. But the risks in my mind are much, much greater. Um, for a start, I can't see how they will allow this to occur without um, significantly sidelining cash a lot more or even getting rid of it completely. Because this is, this is money that is perfectly traceable. 
um, central banks will be able to keep a track of every single transaction we make in this new reality. There will be kind of like, if there is no cash, there will be no way out of this kind of like panopticon um, economic system. And uh, they will, and, and they, they've admitted this, they've, they are kind of like salivating at the prospect of being able to keep track of our every payment. Um, and it goes beyond that. They're also talking about being able to program money so that certain we will not be able to buy spend our money on certain things um so if they if they decide that what thing well i mean if they decide that maybe we've had a bit too much to drink um one particular week they'll be able to stop us being able to buy more alcohol um wow. and the same goes for certain foods maybe they decide we're not eating healthy enough but I mean, like it's you know that that is something that again they are talking about. The Bank of England is openly suggesting that this could be a possibility. So not only will they be able to keep a track of what we're we're spending money on, they'll be able to potentially control what we can and cannot spend money on. Which is so interesting to me because the whole movement for Bitcoin and these other currencies, obviously they're not the central bank currencies, but the whole movement is because people we're saying it's decentralized, it's taking down the banks, it's actually going to shift things in a more positive direction. Like, what is your opinion on the ones that aren't central bank backed? Oof, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of agnostic when it comes to uh, cryptocurrencies. I can see that there are certain advantages they have. There are major issues with cryptocurrencies. I think that they've been used up till now certainly is more of a, a speculative asset than than actual money in most cases i think that the potential they have for decentralizing elements of the economy is 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 can be potentially a good thing especially if if cash is done away with um so i mean mm -hmm. like that's where i see cryptocurrency maybe have playing a, some sort of role um, yeah. But I, I wonder, I have serious questions as to whether or not they, they will be tolerated, should we say, um, because, I mean, we've seen how a lot of governments have be, kind of like toughened their regulations. So, I mean, like, for example, in Spain right now, uh, you are supposed to declare all your the income you have generated through cryptocurrencies that's something you're kind of got to do by law now um so so it's it's like you can you can say okay well i'm not going to do it but if you get caught then you're in serious trouble and that is the case going to be the case more and more so i think that um there's a no lot way of, out i think it's one of my biggest concerns about cryptocurrencies is they've kind of like they've normalized digital money for so many people mm -hmm. and a lot of people are like yeah you know they, we're not going to be tracked we're not going to be traced but but i think that one of the beauties for the central banks of cryptocurrencies is they've allowed them to see what happens to see how digital money works um and they've also conditioned people to the idea of digital money 
Now, I'm not against digital money per se. I think that obviously, you know, people use digital, we use digital money all the time. Um, yeah. I use, I, I have a debit card that I use. I don't use credit cards, but I use debit cards. Um, I don't use mobile money, but I respect everybody's right to do that. Um, although we saw recently in Russia what can happen um, if you are in the wrong country at the wrong time, you can just suddenly have your mobile money application just taken down. That is, um, again, it was an example of the risks of a digital money system. We saw again in Canada how the government um, essentially gave the banks the, the power to... to confiscate, to freeze the money of people who had been um, either involved in or donating, simply donating money to a protest movement that the government had decided was, was suddenly no longer legal. Uh, it's, that, that is kind of like my, my major concern with a purely digital money system in the future. It gives too much power in the kind of the hands of very small, very powerful, very small number of very powerful actors. It's, it's a consolidating, it's a centralizing system. Um, and, and yet, I, I think that the best we can hope for in the future is to have a system where you have digital and analog. I mean, cash is one of the most important um, final kind of like, bastions of freedom we have left, it's one of the few things that allows us to still function as private, autonomous individuals. Um, we can transact without having the bank in between um, extracting fees. Um, so I mean, every time, most people don't realize, you know, you, when you use a credit card, when you use a debit card, you know, the retailer pays a price. Um, yeah. It is, it, it is not a free transaction. And even like the mobile, the typical mobile money apps that exist in Spain, we have one called Bizum, which is kind of like, at the moment is free, it allows people to transact. Um, you know, I, people can send each other money free of charge. And a lot of people are enticed by that because it's so much easier than cash. You don't have to go to the bank and take out money, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is, is that once cash is gone, once the ultimate competitor has gone, there's nothing to stop banks increasing those charges, or to start, so rather than increasing, but start applying charges to those services. Um, I think that cash is a fundamental public good that unfortunately in many countries is not valued as such. Yeah. Wow, it's a crazy time. I didn't have a, mo a smartphone during the pandemic um, for a long time. And I, you know, just going around, even getting a menu at a restaurant, you know, I couldn't even scan a barcode and then they wouldn't give me the menu. And they, so I, you know, it's the same thing with the cash, like they wouldn't accept cash. So it's definitely um, something that's expedited a lot of the things that I guess that the governments have wanted to do for a long time, or maybe it was all um, planned, depending on what people's thoughts are. But I'm just curious, I guess I know we're running short on time, but what would you say 
I mean, this is like a really long question, I guess, in terms of, um, I'm sure the answer isn't quick, but what would you say is the worst case scenario vaccine, like passport situation, let's say global treaty, um, global pandemic treaty is approved and we go down that line where we have vaccine passports, like what does that turn into? Because obviously, what are these other elements like similar to the digital currencies and that are playing a role in what will inevitably become these um, digital identifications for us and what they're tied to? And then, <laughs> so please remember that. And then, like, what can we do um, today to help prevent this from happening? Okay, worst case scenario. <laughs> a worst case scenario is digital identity with central bank digital currencies. That is a worst case scenario. I mean, that is a world I, at the very least, would not want to live in because it will be a world where just about everything we do can be track traced. And it's not just about tracking and tracing things we do because, to a certain extent, a lot of what we do is already tracked and traced by. Uh, a lot of the tech companies, but it's the it's the fact that these technologies can be used to force a certain a large degree of compliance on people. So I mean, we've seen it with the vaccine passports. As long as you've taken your two vaccines, you can continue to interact and to function as a legal citizen. Um, who is um, able to, you know, who is eligible for services, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then they change that from two vaccines to three vaccines. So they change the rules as they go along. And I mean, I, that is a completely different society to the societies we've been living in over, over generations. The, these are societies where social contracts has completely changed. And the World Economic Forum which is a large part to play in a lot of what is happening, um, openly admits this. This is about redesigning the social contract. And these technologies can be used to open up the so-called digital world for people, but they can also be used to close off the digital world. And not just the digital world, but the real world. They can close off your ability to leave your house um, as has happened in Germany with the, uh, and Austria with the kind of like the lockdowns of the unvaccinated. So, and once you have that linked up with cash, so, so once you have that linked up with money, uh, which is inevitable with the central bank digital currencies, as, as the Financial Times recently reported, you know, there's no way you can have central bank digital currencies without digital identities. Those two things come hand in hand. Once you have that, it essentially means that governments will have the means to control what we, what we do. They will have the means to enforce behaviors. And, and that, is, that is a power we've never seen before. I think people, people struggle to understand what we're facing because there's, it's not kind of like the totalitarian systems of, of the 20th century. It's not, you know, these are not the tyrannies where you have a mustachioed man on, on the wall of every classroom um, who we're supposed to revere if you are in that classroom or you're supposed to 
um, you know, who, who go down in history as the butchers of societies. I mean, like, this is, this is there, there's no face to this tyranny. And I think that is what most terrifies me. You know, we are going into kind of like this, this technocratic dictatorship, this what I call techno-feudalist, techno-fascist dictatorship with our eyes closed. We're not even aware it's happening in most cases. And so people, people are not engaging with reality. And it's, it's about, you know, the loss of agency over our own lives. And that is what freedom is, is the ability to, to influence what happens in your environment. And if you are in the kind of like digital dystopia that, that they are trying to build, then you will lose that agency. And so, I mean, that's, that's what most terrifies me. It's um, whether you want to call it privacy or freedoms or rights or whatever, those are all on the negotiating table right now, but we're not at the table. In fact, we're not even aware that that table exists in most cases. So, I mean, like, there's no public debate about this. So, I mean, like, yeah, I think that when, with regard to your second question, what can we do? We can start talking about this at dinner tables. We can start talking about it. And if people like say to you, well, you know, this is just conspiracy theory, then you've, I think we've got to have answers to that question because it's not conspiracy theory. This is happening in front of us. And it is literally about battling in the war of ideas, battling it out and winning the fight. Because if we don't win this fight, then, then this is absolutely a fair complete. This is, this is guaranteed to happen. Wow. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. I am so inspired by, again, what you're sharing. And I know I completely agree with you. I think having these conversations with our loved ones, it starts with our loved ones, because if our yeah. own loved ones can't hear us speak about this, then how can we go on to share this information with others? And Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, the I mean, this is not about, I say this in my book, this is not about whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. By now, um, given the limitations of the vaccines in the sense that they do not protect you from catching it, they do not protect you from spreading it, getting vaccinated is without a shadow of a doubt a personal decision, or it should be a personal decision of each person. This is about something so much larger than that. This is about how our children, our grandchildren, the societies in which they're going to grow up, whether or not they're going to inherit the sort of um, freedoms, the sort of rights that we have lived with up until now. And it really is as simple as that. It really is. And I have, yeah, I mean, when you were speaking, I just was like, my, the first thought that I always have is I just need to go get some land, protect this land, like find people who are willing to barter with like without you know money essentially and use our skills i mean that's like the life that it takes me it's like i just want the complete opposite of this road that we're going down just like you said and so anything i can do to prevent this from happening to not just me but my children and their children and everyone i think like you said it just all comes back to our agency and our freedom and and I think in this day and age, at least in the United States, I mean, saying the word freedom 
even is just considered baffling and unbelievable and racist, you know, but then you see what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, they needed guns to go and fight for their freedom. And here we're, you know, talking about like the fact that everything, we're just not allowed to have anything anymore, basically. And it's wild because I don't own a gun, but you bet if I'm going to go buy some land and I'm going to need to protect my family, like wh what is it that's, that we're going to need to protect ourselves at that point? So it's, it's all really interesting. And, um, and I, I, mean, just, I mean, personally again, speaking, I think that there's, it's, it's, I mean, the U.S. has this, you know, the, 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 is different from a lot of countries in Europe. So, I mean, like, yes, you have the ability to bear arms and that change that differs from state to state. But, I mean, like, I think that we are in such a key moment that, I mean, the idea of kind of like just retiring to some land and kind of like hoping that you're going to, yeah. <laughs> um, be able to live it out. Um, I think that that is, um, that is, that is probably a dream. Um, yeah. because the amount of power and control that these changes, these technological changes will give to kind of like central planners, it's going to be very hard to live on the edge of that. Um, it's not going to be impossible. And I'm sure that there will be a lot of people living on the edge of that, but it ain't going to be a pretty existence. Um, yeah. So I think that I think it's fundamental that people realize that there is there is a window of opportunity. And while we still live in supposedly democratic societies, while we still enjoy certain rights, we need to exercise those rights, and we need to begin pushing back against what is happening. And the only way to do that is, as I said is first of all trying to make sure that this conversation is taking place at, at a state level, at um, a local level, at, at a family level. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's trying to make sure. I know that certain people in my family are beginning to see, see things differently. Um, but I mean, that's because I've written a book about it and I've read it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so it's like, you know, whether or not we can push this forth and move it on. I think that, that that is the big question. So I hope I hope anyway, I hope this this conversation helps in some way or another.